0: Our text today is from uh, Matthew chapter 2. We read some of it earlier. It's printed in your bulletin. I'm going to read it, but it's it's very short. And then we're going to read the section out of the book of Hosea that Matthew is referring to, that he says this is the prophecy that has been fulfilled because without understanding the context of Hosea, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And so let's let's uh, read it together. And uh, you can find it in your bulletin. uh, Let me find the page for you. If you don't have your scriptures with you, it's on page 5. Now hear God's Word. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Now here's the passage from Hosea that he's referring to. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. But the more I called him, the farther he moved from me offering sacrifices to the images of Baal, and burning incense to idols. I myself taught Israel how to walk, leading him along by the hand, but he does not know or even care that it was I who took care of him. I led Israel by ropes of kindness and love. I lifted the yoke from his neck, and I myself stooped to feed him. But since my people refuse to return to me, they will return to Egypt and will be forced to serve Assyria. War will swirl through their cities. Their enemies will crash through their gates. They will destroy them, trapping them in their own evil plans. For my people are determined to desert me. They call me the Most High but they don't truly honor me. Oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? How can I destroy you like Adma? Or demolish you like Zeboim? My heart is torn within me. My compassion overflows. No, I will not unleash my fierce anger. I will not completely destroy Israel for I am God and not a mere mortal. I am the Holy One living among you and I will not come to destroy. For someday the people will follow me. I the Lord will roar like a lion and when I roar my people will return trembling From the west, like a flock of birds, they will come from Egypt, trembling like doves, they will return from Assyria, and I will bring them home again, says the Lord. Israel surrounds me with lies and deceit, but Judah still obeys God and is faithful to the Holy One. This is the word of the Lord. There's always a danger, as I've told you each week, that uh, when you read a Christmas story like we did at the Advent reading that Dave did, uh, it it just kind of goes over the top of our heads because we've heard it so often. And those of you that grew up in the church, you know that we've actually not thought of anything original in 2,000 years for Advent. It's all the same stuff, all the same Scriptures. And there's a danger that you just are not listening. And uh these prophecies that uh, Matthew mentions, and the dreams that Joseph had are just packed full of very intense meaning, and the original audience that would have heard these stories uh, that would have rung true in their minds because they were so uh saturated with the scriptures of the Old testament. And so I picked this one because it's a little needs a little bit more explaining. Uh, why Matthew is referring to this particular verse out of Hosea, and we'll look at that. The immediate context of Joseph's dream is to warn uh, uh, Joseph to get out of Israel and go to Egypt. And the next dream that he has is to tell him to come back and return to the land of Israel. This is the third dream he had, and this is uh, the context that we find this verse from Hosea. In his very first dream in chapter 1, God told him this, Don't shrink back, do not fear, to take Mary and name Jesus. Now these two words he used, as we talked about in the first week of Advent, to take her meant to take her openly, perhaps even publicly marry her. And then on his own shoulders and out of his own life, cover her shame and her guilt for this unwed pregnancy. Now we can talk about the incarnation, and it's true. She was a born, uh, he was born without having intercourse with, uh, uh, with any male human being. But imagine that you heard that. You would have said, oh yeah, for sure. And so what God was asking Joseph to do was to step into that breach and take that shame and that guilt on his own shoulders. He's a wonderful... Actually, in Scripture, very few uh, characters are idealized. Joseph is one of them. He's an ideal character. We find no flaw in him. And he steps in and he takes her. And he names Jesus, which means he adopted him. Again, publicly and openly, this is my son. He became Yeshua ben Yusuf, Jesus, son of Joseph. And Joseph took the burden of Jesus Christ on his shoulders and in a way saved him because the scripture tells us that Jesus was going to save his people from their sin. That was the first dream, that was the first context, and he said give him this name, Jesus, but give him this, name, this other name, Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. And it became a battle cry to the, to the armies of Israel when they were standing out in the battlefield after this happened in, in the, the book of Isaiah chapter 7. They would be uh, hitting their sword uh, and their, their, their spears on their shields and shouting at the enemy, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God is with us. And that was, became a battle cry. And so Matthew just picks it up, brings it right here and says, this is the One who has come to defend us. God is with us. He is going to go to war against our enemies. And then in the second dream, the, the angel tells Joseph, flee to Egypt. Run for your life. And the immediate context is just be safe. Get away from here. But the deeper context... He quotes Jeremiah in this amazing text where Jeremiah is telling the people who are getting ready to be transported into exile, a cry is heard in Ramah. Rachel, weeping, wailing, inconsolably crying for her children because Ramah was the place where Rachel, the wife of Jacob, died giving birth to Benjamin. And there was weeping and wailing because she was not going to be able to to know her, her children. And there was great sorrow. And Jeremiah picks this theme up and when he sees the people gathering at the staging site in Ramah because all the... All the population of Israel had been gathered up and they were staging them there to take some of them to Babylon and some of them they were just going to summarily murder. If you couldn't make the trip, they killed you. If you had a little baby, they killed the babies because who's going to take a baby on a trip where you're going to go become a slave? And families are being separated. Little children are being torn from the arms of their mothers. And, and, and Jeremiah is witnessing this. And he quotes from Genesis and then Matthew picks this up and he quotes it again because Jesus' wife was saved. His life was saved at the expense of these innocent boys in Bethlehem. And why? Again, how do you know? Because he says that, that the consolation of Israel will be the Messiah who will come and save all of us from our sins. All of us from death, including those little innocents in Bethlehem. And now we see this next dream. Herod dies. Look at 19-21 through 21 in your text. The angel came to Joseph in a dream and he said, Rise, take the child, go to Israel. Now return to Israel. And Joseph, without question, obeys. There's never any, there's never any pushback from Joseph. He just obeys. He's, he's an amazing character. And then i switched it around. So I put verse 15b because it's it's just, I just chronologized it for some reasons that aren't important. But 15b is where he says, this is to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet. Out of Egypt I've called my son. So let me give you the context and let's talk about this. And we'll look at it in... in uh, I'm going to give you three points. I don't know, I'm getting to the point where I can't count past three. But I'm hoping that one of these days I'll give you a sermon with just one point. Wouldn't that be great? It would only be 15 minutes. We'd have to do the other two. All right. listen. We're going to look at it under three heads and don't jump out of your skin when I say the first one. I don't want anybody to have a heart attack when I say it. Okay? But the first one is the doctrine of election. Second one is the... the, obstructive, obstinate rejection. So you've got election and rejection, and finally we're going to look at the redemption that God wields in His hands when He comes to save the people. And so let's look at election. I don't know of anything in the Bible that gives people more heartburn uh, than the doctrine of election, but you can't read a lot of your Bible without seeing it in places uh, that are like this. Where, where God not only says it, but He re-says it and re-says it. I chose you, you did not choose Me. I stepped into eternity, and I did something to make it possible for you to come to Me. And so in verse 1, look at it. He says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. Hosea is looking at this horrific event that is about to take place where the people are going to get taken away into exile and families torn apart. And he's saying, someday God is going to revisit His original promise. He's going to come back and He's going to bring you back from exile the way He brought you out of Egypt. And why? Because He loves you. Hosea recalls the original grace And love of God in His divine election. Abraham was not looking for God. God went and got him. Nobody, in fact, I have not been able to find a scripture in the Bible where anybody is running around desperately trying to find the God of the Bible. Now, they're busy in the Bible finding other gods. And we are too. In fact, some of the most striking language used in your Bible... It's, it, we can 't translate it directly from the original language because it would be too vile. you couldn 't read it in church. about the condition of the hearts of people towards their idols, they become lovers. And there 's some amazing language, and again, the English translators won 't touch it. They just they may make it real soft, and it 's not soft. Because we run after these idols. We, we, we crave them. John Calvin said our heart's an idol factory. It's producing them all the time. God said to Israel when He brought them out of Egypt and they got to Mount Sinai and, and they were getting ready later, 40 years later, to go into the land uh, of Israel. They are out there on the plains of Moab. And, and, and Moses recalls their history of redemption over 40 years and he says this, To the people. You are a holy... And by the way, this scripture means you as well. You are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on the earth, He chose you. Listen to these words. To be His special treasure. That's as good as we can do it in English. It's so much better in the original language it's, it's it's the thing that he prizes what do you prize what do you hold dearest and nearest to your heart maybe it's your children or your wife or your marriage or, or anything this is what what he's alluding to he's saying that the dearest and nearest thing to you the thing that is immediate to your heart special treasure he didn't set his heart now he's going on listen he didn't set His heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people. You were the smallest. Rather, simply because the Lord loves you, He is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers, to your ancestors. You know, it's kind of like this. And, and those of you with little kids, now my kids are old, uh, older. Uh, I've got a 36-year-old and a 30... And I, I mean, I had these kids when I was 10 years old. Uh, but... <laughs> And I've got a 30. I think he's 38 now, something like that. I don't know. They're old, and they got kids of their own. So I have grandchildren that I like better than them, than their parents, Uh, because I don't have to do much except spoil them, give them candy, and chocolate, and gluten. I make sure they get all the gluten they can handle. Okay. (laughs) All right. So. Uh, your child crawls up into your lap. Just imagine, parent, most of you have had kids, or if you haven't, you've seen children. And imagine the parent climbs up into your lap and he says to you, Papa, uh, uh, do you love me? And Papa says, of course I love you. What a question, Uh, of course I love you. And the baby says to Papa, or the child says to Papa, why, why do you love me? And the papa says, well, you know, when you were born, you were a very strong, strapping little boy. You had good bones and good makeup and you looked like you were going to become a strapping fellow that could get out there and work in my fields and make me some money. Or to the girls, oh, you were a beautiful baby. We couldn't get over how beautiful. You had the biggest eyes and the sweetest little smile. And I knew that one day I would be able to marry you off and profit from you. You're all thinking, well, that's not me. (laughs) Yeah, Okay, I'll give it to you. You know... I know that you're a smart kid and you're going to make really good grades in school, aren't you? And you're going to obey me and you're going to make me look really good in church. We're going to whip you right into shape so that you can make me look good in church. And you're going to be a great Christian little child, aren't you? Because after all, that's why I kept you. So that I could have the perfect family and all my little chickens and all my little ducks in a row And everybody would admire me because of my wonderful family. No laughter there, okay? You get the picture, right? We would never say something like that to our children. We might think some of those things, but we would never say it. And God comes along to us and we climb into His lap and we say to Him, Why do you love me? And we say the most insane things back to him. Well, you looked down the tunnel of time and you knew that I would come to you someday and be a great minister and a preacher of the gospel, and thousands of people would come to see me and hear my voice. Right? (laughs) Or you looked down the tunnel of time and you saw that I was going to cure cancer. Or you looked down, you saw that I was going to really turn out good. Or, worse than that, I looked down the tunnel of time and you chose me. Thank God you chose me. Uh, thank myself. Thank myself that you chose me, that you decided in your goodness to follow me. I'm being facetious because it is so ridiculous. When you read scriptures like this in Hosea, or you read scriptures like this from the book Of Romans, or anywhere else that you want, the book of Deuteronomy, and you see that God set his love on you. Your parent, if you're a parent that loves his child, you will say to them, when they say, Why do you love me? What are you going to say to them? I love you because I love you. I love you because you're mine. I don't care that you were small and deformed and had Down syndrome or maybe one arm or one leg. I don't care. I don't care that you didn't look that great or maybe you couldn't make it or you didn't thrive when you were born. No, you're mine and I will love you till the day you die. That's what we tell our children. No matter what happens, no matter what goes on in their life, their parents are always there for them and God is saying that to us. I set my love on you. And I will not leave you because I promised. I promised that you're mine. And Matthew is reminding a bunch of people, a whole population of people, and beyond that, he's reminding the population of the planet Earth. You're mine. Return to me. Come back. I'm sending someone for you to save you. Will you trust him? And just like Israel, we we can be so obstinate. We want to know the reason God loves us. Charles Spurgeon, I've quoted this before and I hope I'm going to keep quoting it because I love it. Charles Spurgeon said, I believe the doctrine of election. I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I never would have chosen him and he must have chosen me before i was born because he he never would have chosen me after and he must have chosen me for reasons that i don't know because i have never been able to find a reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love now that's the heart of a person who's broken and humble before the love and grace of God, and you're down on your knees, and you're saying, I have nothing. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. I have nothing. And yet, you and I know, we know very well that once you get into, once you get into the church and you start getting around other Christians and you start—you want to start rolling out all your stuff either to impress them or some people even go so far as to impress God. They want to, they want to put God into their debt. I've done all this for you. I've done all these wonderful things. I obey you. I do everything. You owe me. And if we don't even say, you owe me, we still have that in our heart. It still is eating away at us. How come this bad thing happened? You know, bad things happen. It doesn't mean that God is doing something to you in particular. We live in a world that is fallen and broken. Bad things happen. The very fact that we can take another breath is the grace of God. God. And what do they do? Look at verse 2 through 4. This is the, 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 what Hosea does in this 11 chapter. It's remarkable because he just goes through the whole story of redemption and, and the history of redemption. Look at verse 2. The more I called you, the farther you moved away. You know, every Sunday, if you come to church every Sunday, God is calling you. It's not me. I'm standing in a holy place. This little square, this three-foot square area of the pulpit, Uh, the church has always said is is sacred ground, at least while I'm here. Now, if you want to come up here, it won't be sacred anymore. You will spoil it. (laughs) You know I'm kidding, right? No, it's because that the Word of God is supposed to go from this pulpit. And God help us that it doesn't go from this pulpit. Cursed be the man or woman who steps here and says something other than the Word of God. The curse of God, the anathema of God is on that person. But God is calling us. The more I called, the farther they moved away. Have you all ever been there? I have. I, have run. I ran for ten straight years from God. And that was after I became a Christian. An uber-Christian. I was like the best Christian in the world. Until I wasn't. And then I ran for ten years. The more he called, the farther we moved away. We started offering sacrifices to Baal. And if you've been in our Sunday school class, we've talked ad nauseum about idolatry. And all I have to say is a couple of words, a couple of phrases, and we can find out what your idols are. Immediately if you're honest if you're dishonest there's no hope for you anyway but if you're honest one or two words will expose the idols and I won't do it because it'll make you mad like stuff like gun control just look inside, look inside your heart when I say that look inside your heart when I say Nancy Pelosi Look inside your heart. And don't tell me, Will I have righteous indignation? No, you don't. You wouldn't know righteous indignation if it came up and bought you in the bitch in the behind. Jesus knows righteous indignation. We don't know what that is. All we know is other stuff: anger, contempt, hatred, vile, looking down our nose at somebody. Just find that thing that really ticks you off. And you'll find your idols. Find that thing that you can't control. Or the thing that scares you and keeps you up at night. And you're wringing your hands and you can't sleep. Because, oh my God, is my kid going to get into Harvard or not? You know, terrified that something really uh, is going to let you down. Find those things, folks. You will never be free unless you find them. And if your pastor gets up and tells you anything else, he'd be a liar. Find them. Take the stake of God's Word and drive it in the heart of that vampire because it is sucking us dry. It always has, it always will. And so we always have to be reminded that idolatry is the sin that is beneath the sin, that is controlling and enslaving us just like Hosea says I taught them to walk I led them by the hand he says I was out there in the wilderness leading them guiding them and they turned on me they don't even know it was me that was taking care of them I led Israel with ropes of kindness let me ask you something figure out the idol that's in your heart and ask yourself is that idol going to ever die for you is that idol ever going to do anything for you except enslave you but when you come to Jesus Christ, He always says, Me for you. He always says, I'll give myself for you. And you say to Him, but I, what have I done to, to deserve this? And He said, you're mine. You are mine. You want to know why Christianity is so anemic? Is because we don't believe that. We don't believe that we're His. Because we think we're being measured every single moment on our behavior. And behavior is the easiest thing in the world to modify. You can modify. If you, want to, if you want behavior change, I will tell you honestly, as God is my witness, if all you want to do is become a better person, get another religion. Christianity is terrible at making bad people good. Did you hear me? Christianity is the worst religion for making bad people good. It doesn't do that. Ravi Zacharias said Christianity is not making bad people good. It's making dead people alive. And there's all the difference in the world between those two things. Completely. Dead people. Alive. And God brought them out of Egypt. He set them free. He gave them life at Mount Sinai. He said, look, I loved you. I brought you out on eagles' wings. I set you up to be the nation, my people, my priests, my kings. I did all that. That's in chapter 19. I brought you out. I loved you. I brought you on eagles' wings. Then He tells them, chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. Now, therefore, now that I've done all this for you, you shall have no other gods before me. No other gods before me. See, look back. What did I do for you? Now, based on that, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, Matthew is quoting this. Matthew is bringing up that rich history of Israel for the people of his day because they're just like us, just like them, just like everybody. And here comes Jesus, and He is not going to uh, b- perform the way they think He should. And you know what, folks? We don't need to look outside. We don't, we, we don't need to look at Hollywood. We don't look, need to look at our culture. We don't need to look at the Democratic Party. We don't need to look at the Republican Party. We don't need to look at any of those things to see... This rejection of God. All you have to do is look in the mirror. And if you're honest, you will say, It's me. I'm the man. God have mercy on me, a sinner. God have mercy on me, the sinner. But I'll tell you what, Christians have a terrible history. Israel did too, of pointing their fingers at everybody else and all the problems out there. They will not look and I'm begging you. Because Christianity won't make any sense to you until you start looking and taking the hard look inside. Because the result, look at what happened in in verses 5-7. through They went back into slavery. Since they refused to return to me, they're going to return to Egypt. Back they go. Back to Assyria. And then eventually to Babylon. War is going to swirl around their cities. Enemies crash their gates. They're going to be destroyed. And they were. They call me the Most High. You know, this has got to break your heart, folks. When I was reading it, it broke my heart. They call me the Most High, but they don't truly honor me. Jesus said, you honor me with your lips, but your heart's far from me. And so everybody in this room today, this is us. I'm not not pointing my finger out there. I i got nothing to say about Nancy Pelosi except this one thing. She's better than me. She's better than me. I don't hear any amens. You don't believe that? No, of course not. Yeah, of course not. Well, I, I'm, I'm picking on the poor speaker of the house. But l- listen, the, if you don't see other people out there better than you and that you're there by grace, that you're the one on the, the, the sidewalk with the cup and the, and the stupid cardboard sign, you know, give me money, I'm, I'm poor. Uh, if you don't see yourself like that, then what, what, what is Jesus uh, just coming alongside to, to h- kind of help you out? To be your pal, your buddy, your, co- your uh, co-pilot, your what is the other bumper sticker stuff that we put on our cars? God help us. No, He's the God of the universe. The Creator of all things. The Holy One. The Most High. And we treat Him sometimes like He's an advisor of some kind. Well, I don't know what, I don't know what Ivy League college to go to, so I guess I better ask Him. See which Ivy League college I should go to. I'm being sarcastic because I think American Christians in particular need to wake up. Wake up. Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. He's the Lord. He's the King. Let's give our hearts to Him like never before. Let, let's, let, let's let history write our story saying, well, those people at Christ the King, they were crazy. They were insane they loved Jesus so much. They gave their hearts to Him so much. What was up with that little church in El Paso? Wouldn't you like that to be written into church history? Because we actually believe it? I'm begging you. We're going into a new year, 2020. It's got lots of zeros and and, uh, lots of twos. That could mean anything. I mean, kind of like 1999. You know, everybody was you know wringing their hands at the end of the world. Well, this is 2020. It may be the end of the world. Let's go into 2020 strong, folks. Let's give our hearts to Jesus. Will you do it? I hope you will. Why? Because look at what He says in these final verses. Some of the most tender words that you will ever hear, not only in the Bible, they're the most tender words you will almost ever hear in the Bible, but they're almost the most tender words that you will find anywhere in any literature. God is going through this very poetic, and as sometime in one of our Q and A's, I'll explain it all to you. in The Hebrew poetry is going through these these weal and woe and, and and accusation, then forgiveness, and he's going back and forth because it's so punchy, it's so powerful. And here, he's just finished saying, you're going to be destroyed. Uh, you're going to be wiped out. There's not any hope for you. The end is near. It's all over for you. And then you hear God's heart, His cry from the depths of His soul. Oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How? How can I let you go? How can I destroy you like Admon these were These were suburbs of Sodom and Gomorrah my heart God is speaking to you right now my heart is torn within me my compassion it overflows no I will not unleash my fierce anger I will not completely destroy you for I am God I'm not a man I'm not a mere mortal I am the Holy One living among you someday Take a pencil, circle that. Someday, someday the people will follow me. Someday they will follow me. I'll roar like a lion and they'll come to me trembling like a flock of birds or like doves. They will return to me and I will bring them home again. How does he do that? Look at the final verse. Israel surrounds me with lies and deceit, but Judah, they still obey me. Now I hope your mind is making some connections, because when he says that, Israel, the northern ten kingdoms, were in rebellion against God, and they were being taken away and enslaved to to Assyria in 722. Israel followed uh, 150 or so years later, if my math is... uh, close to being right, Uh, they were carried away into exile in Babylon. Judah also ended up betraying God at the end of the day. But God says, I won't destroy you. I won't utterly forsake you. I will restrain myself because Judah still obeys me. You know, folks, we have a cross in our church, and some of you wear crosses and jewelry. I have crosses in my home up on the walls. I have the, uh, the crosses, the Orthodox crosses, uh, from my grandmother and grandfather's casket because the priest would always put a cross inside. And I asked uh, 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 F- Father uh, Jihad if I could have the cross. He gives me the cross. I have them on my mm-hmm. walls so that I can remember my grandparents. And what do you think? What do you think? God is thinking about when He says, "Oh, Judah's okay. There, someday they will. someday, someday. Who is the obedient one? Who is the one that you're? Are you hoping to be obedient enough for God to love you? Give it up. But we do know one who is obedient. We do know one who came for us. Gave His life for us. Lived a perfect life for us. Not so that you wouldn't have to live a perfect life, but so that you could. So that you could be freed from slavery and enter into a life of sacrifice and sanctification and giving your heart and fighting the good fight against sin. He came so that we could fight against sin with the Holy Spirit living and abiding in us. Not so we wouldn't have to. That's presumptive grace. We're talking about amazing grace. We're talking about the kind of grace that recreates a soul and gives you a new heart so that you hate sin and love Him. And then that's with you. For the rest of your days, you're able to go against the forces of this world. And maybe you have to do it over and over again. So what? Don't let that discourage you because God remembers Jesus on the cross for us has us taking our sin. And so, I'm going to close by letting you hear the words of somebody that was there and saw it happen. An eyewitness that understood everything Hosea said and everything that Genesis, Moses said and Deuteronomy. All these guys. Somebody that really knew and had actually seen Jesus. Actually knew the story front to back. Let me give you His words. I love this. I wouldn't rather be anywhere in the world than here right now. And I hope this will be true of you in a moment. Listen to God's word (laughs) from somebody that saw it. I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one sitting on the throne with writing inside and out, sealed with seven seals. I saw a strong angel shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven on earth or on earth, no one under the earth, no one was worthy. And I began to weep Bitterly, inconsolably, because no one was worthy. But one of the 24 elders came to me and said, Stop your weeping. Look, look, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir of David's throne has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And I turned and looked, and what I saw was a lamb, as if it had been slain. Do you see what John is doing? He's a lion. He's Judah. He's the one we're waiting for. But he's been killed. He's been slain. He was dead. He looked as if he'd been slaughtered. But he said, I am the one who was dead, but am now alive and reign forevermore. This is the God who is calling you and me. If you're a Christian, He's calling. He's calling you every day. If you're not a Christian, He may be calling you for the first time. doesn't matter. He's calling. He's telling us, I love you, and here is the guarantee of my love for you. Not just when you're good, but when you're bad. Not because you're going to give me something, because you're a big strapping baby, and you're going to grow up to be so wonderful. No. Because my son came out of exile, out of the forsakenness of the cross, the death and hell of the grave. He came out of that exile and returned to save us. And He will return again. Will you trust Him? He's asking you to do that and nothing more. Trust Him. Everything else will take care of itself. Will you do it? I hope you will. Father... uh, these are amazing words. I don't know how we can ignore them. And I, I know we can't because they are true. And whatever else we think may or may not be true. And so, please, I ask you to move in our hearts. For those of us that have served you a long time, rekindle the fire, Father, as we struggle under the burden of doubt and fear and, and self-questioning uh, ourselves. Uh, I know that a lot of us, we don't know The future holds, but we know who holds the future, and so we're asking you, please, to renew us again. And for those who may not know you, Father, I don't know who might, somebody here might need you in a way that uh, they haven't, haven't ever known you before, and so please move in their hearts. I ask you to do that and save them by the power of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.